If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We are excited about Louis starting, even though it will be just virtually for the first few weeks, but uh, we are really praying that uh, he and the family will be able to be with us here on the ground uh, sometime in um, mid to the late September. So we pray for that as well. All right, let's, uh, let's read this passage, Luke chapter 18. We're going to begin at verse 9. I'm reading from the ESV. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace and your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your word again today. And I pray that, God, as we unpack this parable, that you would open our hearts to hear from you, God. Some of these parables are so familiar to us, Lord, but I pray that you would help us glean new insights or even, God, that you would convict us in areas of our life where perhaps we have drifted or fallen. God, guide and direct us as we hear from you again through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to continue looking at the series on the parables of Jesus and what they teach us about how we can become better followers of Christ. Now, if you spend any time studying the parables, you will realize that there are a number of recurring themes in the parables. There are a number of parables that deal with stewardship, for example, how we handle our wealth and our possessions. There are other parables that teach us about what the kingdom of God is like. Other parables teach us about the gifts and the talents that God has given us and how we can use them for his service in the kingdom of God. And then, of course, there is the topic of prayer. Uh, Louis touched on that actually a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the parable and the parable that he, Jesus taught about that when we pray, we approach God with boldness because he is our father and our friend who knows our needs and, and he desires to meet our needs because he cares for us as his children. And recall, Jesus said then in Luke eleven nine, 9, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And so Jesus taught us to, to come to God with boldness and with, with confidence. Today we want to look at another parable related to prayer. And in this parable that we just read earlier, Jesus teaches us about another characteristic of prayer. And that's the characteristic of 
humility. And I'm sure most of us know that humility is an important part of the Christian life. Actually, Martin DeHaan, the founder of Radio Bible Class, used to say this, humility is something we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have. C.S. Lewis is credited with this well-known definition of humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Let's begin by looking at this parable a bit more closely. So here we have Jesus introducing to us these two characters. The, The story revolves around a Pharisee and a tax collector. Two men who came to the temple, essentially it seems for the same purpose, to pray, pray to God. Now, when I was in high school and in English class, which was one of my least favorite subjects, learning about literature, we were always taught that most fictional stories have what's called a protagonist and an antagonist. How many of you remember that when studying English literature? Or, to put it in more readily acceptable or uh, that we think about terms, the story has a hero and a villain, the good guy and the bad guy. Now this is where understanding the historical context of the passage is so important for us. If you lived at the time of Jesus when he told this parable, your first assessment of the two characters in this story would be pretty straightforward. For those living in Jesus' day, listening to him introduce these two men, they would immediately assume that it was the Pharisee who would be the hero of the story and the tax collector who would be the villain. I'm sure that may surprise you. We often paint a negative picture of Pharisees because of the way that they're often presented in the Gospels. They often attack Jesus' credibility. They try to discredit him. They try to bait him to see how he would respond. And then Jesus often had called them out on it using some pretty harsh words at times. But not all Pharisees were like that. Not all Pharisees were arrogant and hypocritical that we sometimes tend to label them as. Let's take a closer look at the Pharisees. Pharisees were one of several religious groups in the Jewish community. There were three primary groups. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The New International Dictionary of the Bible states that of these three groups, the Pharisees were most likely the most influential in the community. In general, Pharisees were considered good people, very religious, very devout men. The word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew term and it means separated ones because they often separated themselves. They they lived very disciplined lives and they obeyed the Jewish laws to the letter. They were upstanding citizens. They paid their taxes to Rome. They tithed of their income for the temple treasury. You'd probably be comfortable having a Pharisee babysit your kids. We know a number of Pharisees by name in the New Testament. Nicodemus was one of them. The man that came to Jesus in secret one night to learn more about his teaching. He was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea, the one who took the body down from the cross, the body of Jesus down after his crucifixion to bury it in his own private tomb. He was a Pharisee. We know the Apostle Paul before he became Converted and Saul, he was also 
the apostle, sorry, Saul, before he was converted and became the apostle Paul, he was also a Pharisee. The people of the community in Jesus' day would have admired Pharisees and considered them, as I said, upstanding members of the community. So you can see why that when you think about the audience listening to Jesus, the Pharisee would have probably been considered the good guy in the story initially. Some commentators say that probably a number of people in the crowd were Pharisees listening to what Jesus had to say, and you know who they'd be rooting for. Next, we meet the second character in the story, the tax collector. Tax collectors, in contrast to Pharisees, were despised by the community. There were several levels of tax collectors, actually. There were the chief tax collectors. The Bible Dictionary describes that Zacchaeus was probably a chief tax collector, overseeing others that were in this Roman taxation system. And then there were the general publicans, or even called toll collectors. They were kind of a lower class of civil servant collecting revenues in this elaborate organization structure called the Roman taxation system. Matthew, the disciple, was most likely one of these publicans or toll collectors. The tax collector was an official government representative who collected direct, direct taxes imposed by Rome on all those areas that they occupied. In the research on tax collection, Brian Stiller describes how this tax system works and it helps us understand what's going on. In addition to the direct taxes Rome would take from the occupied regions, there were indirect taxes as well. These taxes were collected by individuals who would get assigned their regions to collect these taxes in by bidding on contracts with Rome. The lowest bidder would win the contract and then they'd have to pay the Roman officials up front for the money that they owed the Roman system for taxation. These secondary tax collectors or toll collectors would then set up a booth on the sides of the road to collect money from local citizens to recoup that investment. But you can see the problem. Any monies collected above their investment was just pure profit. So these toll collectors would cheat the people as much as possible to maximize their profits. And so while the Jews really disliked chief tax collectors, these publicans or these toll collectors were considered the lowest scum of society, the worst of all crooks. They were the extortioners. They were like members of organized crime. So when Jesus begins to tell the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector, before he gets even to the main point of the story, the odds are already stacked against the tax collector and in favor of the Pharisee. But then Jesus begins to give the details of what takes place. The setting of the parable is the temple. It's significant that this parable takes place in the temple. Because the temple was a holy place. It was a place where God's presence resided. It dwelt there for the people to approach him. The story Jesus told isn't just then about these two men, about the Pharisee and the tax collector, but who else is part of the parable? That's right, God is present, watching and listening what's happening there 
among these two men in the temple. Jesus begins to tell the story, and we begin to see his lesson unfold. That leads to our first point this morning. Spiritual pride hinders our relationship with God. As the Pharisee stands there in the temple, he begins with thanksgiving to God, right? Verse 11, God, I thank you. Now, that's a good thing, right? Giving thanks. Unfortunately, unfortunately, most prayers of thanksgiving thank God for who he is. This man is grateful, all right, but what? For himself. He is grateful that he is not like other people, especially not like sinful people. He's not like the crooks of society. He's not like the promiscuous, immoral people. He's not a thief, and he's not a murderer, and he's especially not like this low-life tax collector standing off in the corner praying to God. And then he goes on about listing all the wonderful accomplishments that he has done. And of course, he makes sure that he, he prays loud enough so that everybody around him can hear him. As a minimum, we'd say that he's pretty conceited, pretty high on himself. But conceit is not really at the core of this man's problem. It goes much deeper than that. This Pharisee had a serious heart issue. There he stood praying in the presence of God. He assumed that the external appearances, the things that he did, the things that other people saw and considered important were also important to God. It made him feel good about himself, right? Have you ever caught yourself doing that? You go through your mind and you list all the great things that you do for God. Things with spiritual significance. Serving in the church. Going on a mission trip. Making a significant contribution to that special outreach project. Before you know it, you start to feel pretty good about yourself. And then before you know it, you begin to compare yourself with other people that are around you. And you come to church on Sunday and you hear a sermon and you get it. Wow, that's a great application for my neighbor beside me here. It suits their life more than it suits my life. And suddenly you feel a bit more spiritual than this person sitting beside you because maybe you've just one-upped them in God's eyes. That's what's happening in this parable You see, at the heart of the Pharisee's problem is more than just simple conceit. At the heart of this man's problem is pride. Luke opens this passage by telling us who Jesus is addressing in this parable. Remember verse 9. He told this parable. See, this is Luke's introduction to the parable. Jesus told this parable, Luke says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I like the way the NIV translates it. To some who were confident and of their righteousness, their own righteousness, and looked down on everybody else. You see, pride leads us to think better than uh, ourselves, better than others. And as a result, we become critical of those around us. Why? 
Because the only way that a self-righteous person can feel good about themselves is to compare themselves with somebody else. And if we find some fault or inadequacy in our neighbor, then we see ourselves in a better light. And we assume that we also then have a higher standing in God's eyes. That was the problem for the Pharisee. His pride developed into an attitude of self-righteousness that made him look down on everybody else. The Bible has a lot to say about pride. In fact, the book of Proverbs alone makes it clear what God thinks about pride. We know Proverbs 6, seven things God hates. Here it says here, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, the hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. What's the first thing on that list? It says haughty eyes. Translation, a proud look. Arrogance. God hates arrogance. Here's a few more verses. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant and hard is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 21, 4. Haughty eyes, there it is again, and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, sin I think we get the picture so does that mean that you can never be proud you can never be proud when your daughter does well on a report card you can never be proud when your son scores that winning goal in that hockey tournament or is it a sin that I feel good because somebody's encouraged me or praised me about something that I've done maybe at church or whatever let me share my understanding of the sin of pride. In my mind, the Bible, the pride that the Bible condemns, the pride that God hates is self-promotion. It's this attitude that I'm better than others. It's when I do things in order to get people to praise me or to show off or to make others feel inferior. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6.3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And here in this passage, Luke reinforces this truth. We read this verse 9. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. That's who Jesus is trying to teach something to today. And through this parable, Jesus makes it clear that God is not interested in that attitude, nor is he give, does he give a listening ear to any kind of spiritual arrogance. And then Jesus turns our attention to the tax collector. And that leads to our second point this morning. Spiritual humility cultivates our relationship with God. When you think about the whole demeanor of the tax collector, it brought me back to our study in the Sermon on the Mount and specifically led me to that first beatitude. Do you remember what it is? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This tax collector was a perfect illustration of what poverty of spirit looks like. 
This man did not stand in the center of the temple for everyone to see like the Pharisee did. No, he stood off to the side. He doesn't even look up to heaven, but hangs his head low. And he doesn't raise his voice for others to hear, but rather he beats his chest in sorrow and remorse and prays his very simple prayer to God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's a man who understands what his problem is. He's a man who understands what depravity means. And here's a man who knows that the only petition that he can make before a holy, perfect, righteous God is this. God, have mercy on me. He knows that there's nothing that he can do to earn favor in God's eyes. He knows that he... He needs God's mercy. He needs to receive God's forgiveness. And he implores God not to give him the punishment that he deserves because of his sin. See, that's mercy. Not receiving what we actually deserve. And then Jesus drops the bomb on his listeners in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This is the wow factor here in this parable. This is the, I didn't see that coming moment. We may have saw it, but definitely his listeners didn't see it. Remember when we talked about this in the introduction to parables, there's always this surprise factor. Well, here it is. And in this story, from the context of the Jewish listeners, it's the so-called villain who wins and rides off into the sunset. Not the good guy. It's the tax collector whose cry for mercy and forgiveness reached the ears of God, not the pompous words of this Pharisee, this self-proclaimed righteous man. Everything about this tax collector points to poverty of spirit, a brokenness of what the Bible calls a contrite heart, a deep sense of sorrow, and an attitude of repentance for the sinful life that this man lived. It's the attitude King David describes in Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you, David says to the Lord, will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, God hears the cries of the poor in spirit. And in this story, as Jesus declares at the end, God reaches down with his mercy and his grace and he forgives the tax collector, but not the Pharisee. And that leads to our third point this morning. God justifies those who are spiritually humble. Isn't it great when Jesus actually makes the point of the parable very clear? Again, verse 14 I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This tax collector didn't just go home feeling good about himself. He went home at peace because he knew God heard his cry of mercy. Jesus said he went home justified before God. What does that word mean? Well, it means to be declared righteous. 
this tax collector recognized his sin and put his faith and trust in the mercy of God to forgive him. And as a result of this humble, repentant heart, God justified him. God declared him righteous. The Pharisee declared himself righteous, but no, the tax collector, God declares him righteous. God placed this repentant man into a right relationship with him, and it began with his attitude of humility. When the tax collector came into the presence of his holy God, he saw himself for who he was, a sinner. You see, the Pharisee tried to justify himself. He declared himself righteous. The tax collector stood in the presence of God and humbled himself and left the justification for God's grace and mercy. You may be familiar with the well-known preacher Haddon Robinson. When I was in seminary, we studied his methods of writing sermons and things like that. Listen to what he says in one of the sermons he wrote on this parable. I've got it up on the screen here. One of the benefits of living in God's presence is this. When you really see God, you see yourself. And when you see yourself, you see your sin. And when you see your sin, you cry out to God for grace and forgiveness. And you receive it. The saint is always more aware of his need for God than his success in God. Always more aware of how far he has got to go than how far he has come. Let me read that last section again. The saint is always aware more the saint is always more aware of his need for God than his success in God. Always more aware of how far he's got to go than how far he has come. So in the light of this parable, we need to ask ourselves, who does God look on with favor? Is it on those who do all kinds of good things for him? Is it those who look like great Christians, always doing the right thing? At least that's what it appears to be on the outside. Is it on those who like to make sure we know about the wonderful things that they do, their acts of service, their things they've done for God, for the church, and make sure that we're aware of it just in case maybe we missed it. This parable is a beautiful picture of what it means to be justified by faith alone. It's a perfect illustration of how wicked, a wicked sinful person like you and me, a person without any real goodness in and of ourselves, can be declared righteous before God through a simple act of repentance, crying out to God for mercy and asking for his forgiveness through the blood of Jesus that we're going to be remembering again today. Isn't this really, this parable really a beautiful picture of the grace and mercy that God has extended to us? A beautiful picture of the gospel of salvation? Remember what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of anything we have done. Why? So that no one may boast like the Pharisee did. 
You see, salvation is by God's grace. It's a precious gift from him so that none of us can what? Boast. The kind of thing that the Pharisee thought that he should do in front of everyone watching. And so we need to ask ask ourselves, who does God look on with his favor, with his grace? God, God looks with favor on those who are honest with themselves and understand the reality of their sinful condition and then cry out to him for mercy. Because when we come into the presence of a holy God, we need to recognize our sinful condition. We need to do something serious, some serious self-examining of ourselves. And that begins with a humble heart. There are many great examples of men and women with humble hearts in Scripture. Do a study on that. We saw that about King David in Psalm 51. The Apostle Paul was also a great model for us. In 1 Timothy 1.15, the NIV says, Here is a trustworthy saying, Paul writes, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Again, I refer to Haddon Robinson, who makes some incredible insights into this verse specifically. Notice, Robinson says, that Paul didn't say, I was the worst. You know, like back when I persecuted the church, back when I put Christians in prison, back when I approved the stoning of Stephen, I was bad back then. And he says, I am the worst of sinners. And he said that after he had started all kinds of churches. He had led so many people to Christ. He had spread the gospel around across the whole Roman Empire, suffered persecution for his bold witnessing for Jesus, and yet he declares, I am still the worst of sinners. You see, Paul's goal is not to elevate his own accomplishments, it's to give glory to God. That's the mark of a humble heart. A heart that God hears when we approach his throne of grace. So when we come to the Lord in prayer, we need to come with an understanding of our own sinful condition. And we enter into his holy presence. We enter it with humility. Recognizing the incredible gift of grace and mercy that he has extended to us all because it was Christ who paid for our sin. What a great reminder again as we prepare now to gather around the communion table. God says in Isaiah 66 verse 2, and I'm using the New Living Translation here, my hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word, or to put it simply in the words of Jesus in our parable today, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for this parable that is so challenging, God. We live in a culture that likes to remind us that we should stand up for ourselves, that we should promote ourselves, that we need to, uh, we have all the things that we can demand for ourselves. But God, you remind us in your word that 
you want us to have humble hearts. And that includes when we approach your throne of grace, Lord, that we don't approach with arrogance, we don't approach with this self-righteous attitude, but we approach like the tax collector with humility, recognizing, God, we are sinners in the presence of a holy God. Help us to approach you, God, with the right heart, the right attitude. God, thank you so much for the gift of salvation that Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins so that, God, when we do approach you crying out for mercy, you can give us forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, our Savior. We thank you. We're so grateful for that gift, Lord. Help us now as we are reminded of it to remember the sacrifice of our Lord as we gather around the communion table together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.